Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and will still more will be added to you. And to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, New Hope. Um, I'm Robert Nichols. I'm one of the lay elders here at New Hope. And today I have the great privilege of preaching from the book of Mark the parable of the lamp and the measure um, to continue our sermon series on the book of Mark. Um, uh, Last week, we heard a really powerful sermon from Pastor Rob on another parable, the parable of the sower, which is the parable that comes right before the parable of the lamp uh, in the book of Mark. And, And as Rob has said, the parable of the sower is the pivotal, the most important parable, probably of all the 60 parables that, that Jesus uh, delivered. And, and so the parable today that we'll be looking at, the parable of the lamp, is often called a kind of continuation of the parable of the sower. Some of the same themes are in this parable. Um, there are some slightly different messages, but it does sort of extend the meaning of that parable. So I will be referring back to parable of the sower a little bit, and also Pastor Rob's sermon from last week. Um, I'm sure you notice the parables are in some ways easy. I think as Rob said, they are easy to understand because they offer images of familiar things, but they're also quite difficult because their deeper meanings can seem hidden. They're not explained, obviously. Um, and, they're, and they're open to more than one interpretation. Even the expert commentators don't agree on all the meanings within a parable. Uh, even in this parable where the lamp is the key image, all the commentators don't agree on exactly what it means. Um, and so I'm sure you've noticed that, you know, as you look at the parable, there's something about it. Um, some preachers have said they're, they're kind of like riddles, parables. They're, one commentator compared them to a political cartoon. You either get it or you don't. Um, but I think there's also a sense that even though something may seem uncertain, there's always the possibility and the hope that we will realize something we don't realize right away. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explains the parable and many of the other parables, such as the one today, he doesn't explain. And it's really open to us to understand, um, as Rob explained to us meanings and applications last week to help us along. Um, again, the parables are also difficult because they give us essential and needed truth. Um, they may take us places that are not easy to go, places that are deep, troubling, mysterious, even otherworldly, places we're not sure we want to go spiritually. 
to know more about ourselves, how we are living, what we really believe. We have to trust that Jesus knows where he is taking us through the unfolding of the parables in our hearts and minds. So how many layers of meanings do they have? Well, the answer is really not uncertain. Depends on us to some degree and how we see and hear in response to Jesus's teaching, in response to his words and in response to him. So let's begin with verse 21, the first verse of this passage, and the meaning of the lamp. But first, let's pray. Let's pray for God to guide us. Father, as we come before you to hear your word, please use my voice and my words, which may be dry and unsure, to open up your truths, which are perfect and needed and alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So reading uh, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, or under a bed, and not on a stand? So first, what should we know about the meaning of this lamp? On one level, the lamp is an object, and it's an object that would have been familiar to Jesus' immediate audience, which is usually understood as the same great crowd that Mark has described in other scenes, including in the scene of the parable of the sower that Rob preached about last Sunday. Hearing Jesus speak about a lamp, the crowd would have recognized it as a valuable commonplace household item, small clay vessel filled with olive oil that when lit could illuminate a room, especially if placed on a stand. These type of olive oil or sesame oil burning lamps had been used for thousands of years in the Middle East and in Africa, long before the time when Jesus preached at Galilee before the time of King David, even before the time of the Babylonian Empire. And for some people, Jesus's words might have evoked images of less common, but culturally much more significant lamps, such as the lamp and the lampstand known from scripture, the one that the priest used lighting and keeping lit the lamp on the golden lampstand hidden away in the holiest of places in the tabernacle. Those lamps gave the priests the light to do their work in a darkened room, and they also symbolized the, the eternal presence of God. So as we read from the book of Leviticus, we read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp. That's a light that may be kept burning regularly. To have a better idea of the associations that the lamp would have had for Jesus' listeners, we can recall that numerous references to light are recorded in the Bible. 
and many images of the lamp also appear in scripture. So here are a few. And I think, yes, we have them on the screen. So from 2 Samuel, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Job 29, and Job again took up his discourse and said, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness. And much later from the New Testament, we read in the book of John, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And from Revelation, book 22, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And for the disciples of Jesus, who had heard Jesus explain the parable of the sowers and other parables, at another time, they would have heard Jesus saying these words about John the Baptist. And this is recorded in John 5. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for him, sorry, rejoice for a while in his light. And maybe these words recorded by Luke would have come back to the disciples sometime later when he said to them to prepare them for the time when he would no longer be with them. And this is from Luke. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. But we still haven't identified a deeper meaning of the lamp from the parable. So let's compare this verse that we're reading today in Mark's gospel to very similar or parallel verses in both Matthew and Luke. So first, in Matthew 5, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a lampstand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And from Luke 8, no one lights a lamp and covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he sets it on a lampstand so those who enter can see the light. And from Luke 11, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a cellar or under a basket. Instead, he sets it on a lampstand so those who enter can see the light. And then once more from today's passage, Mark 4.21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? So we see that in Matthew and Luke, the verse reads with the same essential meaning as in Mark, except for one key difference. Matthew and Luke write of the lamp as something that's already there. And the focus is on what is done with it once it's in the house, to light it, and then ironically, to hide it. 
Whereas in Mark, there's a prior action. Someone brings the lamp in. And that someone is key to seeing how Mark's version of the parable is different. We've seen from other scripture verses that this is no ordinary lamp that casts no ordinary light. This is gospel light, faith-giving light. And so it's a reasonable interpretation of the lamp in all three gospels to say that the message is evangelical in purpose and that Jesus through this parable is telling his disciples to go out and shine this light to the world. You don't hide the good news that Christ has come, that the kingdom of God is at hand, any more than you would hide a lit lamp under a basket or under a bed where it will either burn down the house or be extinguished and leave you in darkness. Some, interpret, some commentators have interpreted the lamp as God's word or the message of the kingdom of God or the kingdom itself. And although these interpretations express important truths and are consistent with the messages of the parables before and after this one, the parable of the sower and the parable of the mustard seed, which we will hear about next week, these interpretations do not quite capture the focus of Mark's telling of the parable, as many commentators and preachers have pointed out. There's a more literal translation of the original Greek of verse 21, and it reads like this. And he said to them, does the lamp come that it may be put under the measure or under the bed, not at not that it may be put on the lampstand. The important point is, does the lamp come? So we see the key differences between the more familiar translations of Mark 4.21, which, which are consistent with Matthew and Luke's writings, and then this more literal translation that makes the lamp the subject. It is neither already a part of the household items, nor is it brought in by someone else, but the lamp comes on its own. And second, in the literal translation, it's the lamp rather than a lamp or lamps. So if the word lamps is used, then the meaning can be the disciples. It can mean any faithful person who uses it, uses the word to preach the gospel and to share the gospel. But the lamp, I'm sorry, and a lamp might refer to John the Baptist. But the lamp is Jesus, and his light is incomparable to any other. Jesus is not only a great teacher, a great physician. He's much more than any kind of generational leader, any other faithful disciple or, or servant. As great as John the Baptist was, in whose light Jesus said you could rejoice for a while, 
Unlike any other lamp, Jesus is the lamp. Other lamps carry his light to the world, but God is the source of the light. The lamp in the tabernacle that the priest was ordered to keep burning symbolized the eternal presence of God and the eternal light of Christ. So as we read in Revelation 21, we can look at this passage. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. In the eternal kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the Lamb is Jesus. As Pastor Rob preached last week about the parable of the sower, Jesus is calling us to take the word, symbolized by the seed, into our hearts, to accept it and to bear fruit. But Rob also explained that while Jesus doesn't announce it explicitly, he, Jesus, is the sower. The word comes to us from him. As one commentator put it, at the very moment when he is telling the parable, Christ is sowing the seed of the word. And thus, by telling the parable, he's actually exemplifying it. And so it is the same with this parable, the parable of the lamp. That as Jesus is teaching about the lamp and the light, he is actually revealing himself, his presence, his light. Once again, Jesus is the lamp and the light in Mark. And the lamp has entered the room. He's casting his light on them now. And the word now is important. He's right there standing before them. No wonder they can hear his voice clearly, loudly, even the ones standing in the crowd of thousands far away up on a cliff. But do they realize it? Do they recognize him? Has he entered their hearts and minds? Once again, the lamp that Mark presents to us to focus on is Jesus. And much depends on that detail, that Jesus brings the light as the parable shows us. And yet, we're used to thinking of ourselves as the light bearers, the bringers, the producers, even the creators of light. There's a long history of our doing so, of thinking in this way. Sometime back, I ran across a news story about a study, an academic paper that was written by the Nobel Prize winning economist, William Nordhaus, who came up with the idea of studying the history of light. And what Nordhaus's study showed is that the production of light has grown cheaper all throughout human history. In hours work today, according to William Nordhaus, would have bought 350,000 times the amount of illumination as it could be bought in early Babylonia. Since that time, through the development of new sources of life, light from sesame and olive oil lamps, 
to electrical power, the costs have continually gone down. A couple of details. According to Nordhaus, in Jesus' time, 60 hours of labor bought only 88 minutes of light. Jump ahead to 1880 AD, the same amount of labor, 60 hours, bought 72 hours of light. In 1950, it bought 28,723 hours, or 1,200 days of light, more than three years of light. And by the 1990s, Nordhaus says, 60 hours of labor bought 51 years of light. So to Nordhaus's point, the light we create, man-made light, has increased in value over the centuries, over the millennia, not only because we've managed to make it less costly, but because our uses of it keep expanding. We keep creating new things to use and to value more and more, and our attachment, our fascination, even, even our adoration of the many things we do and use in the light that we have made continue to grow. Jesus's audience would have recognized the high value of having a light in a room to keep out the darkness. And so do we use our illuminated world to replace the dark and to enrich our lives. But I ask myself, do the things cast in my light, in which I invest so much of my interest and time, really fulfill my deepest needs? Isn't there something about this worldly light of ours that is very different from the light that shines from the lamp of Jesus? If not our eyes, don't our hearts tell us that there is something we're missing, something we don't see? And the answer can be found in the parable, that there's something we are unable to see fully, and that is Jesus. So if we turn to verse 22, Jesus tells us, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. As one commentator, James Edwards, put it, for the present, the kingdom of God and Jesus' role in it remain largely hidden. Yet even the concealment of the present hour contains the seeds of what will be revealed. So brothers and sisters, it's easy to think of this passage as belonging to a long time ago when a desperate crowd pressed our Lord for healing, unable to know him as we do, for those who do know him by God's grace as the living God. We have read the New Testament. We know about his life and death, his resurrection. We know the meaning of the gospel after all. But the passage reminds us that it is still the present hour now that we live in, and much has yet to come to light, our hearts tell us. 
The kingdom of God will be revealed through Jesus and through the word of God, not only in the end times, but now. We have been given the seed, the word of God, but depending on the condition of our hearts, we will either cultivate God's word as Pastor Rob prayerfully urged us to do in his message last Sunday, or we will lose it to our own resistance or faint-heartedness or indifference or distraction until we fall away from him, from the only one in whose light we could see what is and what will be revealed, which is Christ in his glory. Once again, the parables are not meant to ease our minds and our consciences. I would imagine for some of us, when we read the parable of the sower last week, we might have been feeling a bit uncomfortable. Three bad soils, only one good. Which am I? What's my spiritual profile? My response to Jesus and the word. Am I resistant? Resigned to give up? Distracted? Or am I truly accepting of him? Yet we can be comforted by something that Pastor Rob said to us last week about how we might see ourselves within these categories of the parable of the sower. And what Rob said is these categories are not static. Even though we now allow the seed, the word of God, to be taken from us in many ways. And, all we, and although we would recognize some of those attitudes of heart described in the parable of the sower in ourselves, and although we know, we confess, that we close ourselves off from Jesus, at least from time to time, intentionally, sinfully, habitually, even in subtle, unconscious ways, in spite of all that, we can, by God's grace, grow in our capacity to recognize Jesus, to draw closer to him, to allow him to draw us to him. I'd like to read from Colossians. So this passage from Colossians 3, if you'd read with me. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If that were not possible for us to be hidden with Christ rather than hiding and being hidden from him, then our Lord would have no reason to tell us to pay attention to his words. If hearing him would do us no good, if it did not hold for us the hope of spiritual growth, why would Jesus say to us again and again to listen, to hear? And reading from verse 23 from today's passage, we read, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? We know that there are those who don't. 
quite a few years ago, this was 24, 25 years ago, my wife Jihan and I met a man and his wife who had come from Korea to study in the US. I think he might have already had a graduate degree. He was a graduate of Seoul National University, obviously a very bright person. And Jihan and I had just begun to attend church that year. We, we were not saved yet then. This man introduced himself with the name Simon. So Jihan asked him if he was Christian. And his answer was, no, but it was something he thought he might do, or rather something he might become when he was much older. He would postpone Christianity until then. Being a Christian, he said, was much more suited to old people. And I remember thinking, is that something you can do? Refer, defer coming to faith for years? Choose the time? Maybe waiting for a more opportune time when you're not as busy pursuing your life goals, like a kind of spiritual retirement plan? It was as though he had measured the worth of believing in God against everything else he could spend his most productive years doing. And he made a utilitarian decision. I can't be sure what he was thinking, but he clearly indicated that being a Christian was a good idea, but not at the present time. Maybe later, not now. Such an inviting plan to keep in reserve that one could bring the lamp into one's house, but whenever, whenever one wanted. But of course, for lack of understanding that the lamp comes under his own power, by his own authority, subordinate to no one. And my wife and I had a conversation, my wife told me she had a conversation with someone just two days ago who shared a very similar perspective to one of the man we met many years ago. And that this person said, she didn't think young people should spend too much time serving in the church that they could spend their time more useful, more usefully doing other things. We turn back to our passage, verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Pay attention. Pay attention to him, Jesus says. Pay attention now, or you won't understand later. In your 30s and 40s and 50s, when the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things have taken a firm hold of your lives and your beliefs, pay attention and respond to the word of God now, Jesus tells us. But what does it take to listen well, to hear his voice? How can we hear in a way that the truth and power of the gospel can really take root in our hearts, in our lives? This is a key question that the parable leads us to ask. This verse, 
which begins, pay attention, introduces the second key image of the parable. So along with the lamp, a household item, is the second familiar item, and this one from the marketplace is the measure. Now the measure in Jesus' day would have been understood as either a two-gallon bushel basket or a scale. In either case, the implied message is about honesty and fairness. You shouldn't give the buyer less than a full measure of goods for what they paid. It's wrong to cheat someone by using an unbalanced scale. And so we see the verse from Proverbs 11, which reads, the Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. And even William Shakespeare, when he wrote his play Measure for Measure, very likely had in mind Matthew 7 too. And in Matthew we read, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But as we read this verse, this part, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, we know again there's a deeper meaning that applies to somewhere other than the market or the courts. There are all kinds of measures that we use in our working lives, in our school studies, in our management of household affairs. These measures are known to us on the first level of the meaning of the parable, but our Lord has told us to pay attention in a way that may be less familiar, but goes deeper. He is telling us to pay attention with our hearts. Although we might devote degrees of attention or heart focus to the Lord or to the word, recognizing the need to manage and measure the time we devote to paying close attention to scripture as we do with Bible reading plans or scheduled time for meditation and prayer, which are truly wonderful things and disciplines to do. The emphasis of the verse, both the warning and the encouragement, may be in the second part. It will be measured to you. In other words, we're not the ones who ultimately measure our hearts. We are called to pay attention to the Lord with our hearts and minds, but God measures the extent to which we are doing so. He measures our hearts. We, frankly, are not able to do it. We're blind to our own faults. We don't see our self-deception. We put off turning to Christ and we think we're all right. We have our reasons for falling away. And Jesus confronts us in our self-deception because it destroys the seed of our faith, it blocks our path to him and to salvation. He checks us with this parable of the measure. Do you see the warning? As one commentator suggested, we are always moving in one of two directions, either 
towards spiritual growth or towards spiritual atrophy, toward Jesus or away from him. And the measure of our spiritual movement may not even be clear to us. It weakens for lack of use. So we need to listen to a better voice than the one in our heads. Listen, behold, Jesus says, a sower went out to sow. Listen to what? The word of God. Behold who? The Lord Jesus. And yet, there is an encouragement that the Lord gives us. And reading again from the parable, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And so I ask again, how can we respond to our Lord with the hope and the desire that what we have will be added to, that we will be given more? And what that means depends on where we are spiritually, where we are with respect to our faith, our belief in God, in Jesus, in the gospel. So as we reach the end of this short parable, let's return to the setting of the great crowd that Jesus has appeared before. And sorry, before we do that, I would like to give one more illustration. When Jesus says that we, have, we may have ears to hear, hearts that are open to the word, it's as simple and profound as that. I'm sorry, I'm going to back up a bit. Let me continue. So as we reach the end of this short parable, let's return to the setting of the great crowd that has appeared before Jesus several times throughout the book of Mark and now stands or sits before him hearing the word of God and the kingdom of God. Some know him, some do not. Those who do not know him know of him. But regardless of their understanding of their own individual needs, of their reasons for journeying to chasten to the edge of the Sea of Galilee, their real need is to come to faith, to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For those who do know him, their need is also great. They need to know him more, to grow in their faith, to deepen their knowledge and love of their Lord so that their lives will change and bear fruit. Jesus is speaking to all of them. God's word, the Bible, is for everyone. It is for the insiders and the outsiders, for those who are living entirely in the light of the world's influences, beliefs, and desires, and for those who live even partially 
in the life that Jesus gives to their, to our minds and hearts. Whoever we are as insiders who know Jesus as Lord or as outsiders, our need is great. And Jesus is teaching us through the parables the attitudes of heart we need to see him and to know him more. But what of those who seem to come before him with nothing other than their need? How will God be revealed to the one who has nothing to add to? What Jesus says they may have is ears to hear, hearts that are open to the word. It's as simple and as profound as that. We have a friend who is planting a church in New York City. His journey is remarkable, and some of you know him. He and his wife attended our baptism service a couple of months ago. His son, by a previous marriage, who is now 16, grew up in China, not as a Christian, not knowing God, but he decided to come live with his father a few years ago. On Saturday mornings, his father was holding a Bible class online, mostly for children living in China. Studies were in English. There were small numbers of children with their parents who attended these weekly meetings. And occasionally, when I would join these meetings on Zoom, I would see this boy who was 14 or 15 at the time, quietly engaged in the study, even helping his father lead the lessons. And I wondered, who is this boy who is taking the Bible so seriously? I didn't know at the time he was our friend's son. About a year later, our friend brought his family to our place for lunch. And I recognized the boy from the Bible studies. There he was, 16-year-old young fellow, sitting at the table, looking out the window. And I asked him, how did you come to faith? How did you come to know Jesus? And he said, well, I read the Bible and I believed what I read. That's it. He read the Bible and he believed. We look at verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. For to the one who has an open heart to hear, to accept Christ, the more the free gift of faith will be given. So again, for those in the crowd and in our crowd here, who have come to know the Lord, let's consider again the questions that Pastor Rob left us with last week, which relate to both closely related parables, the parable of the sower and the parable of the lamp. And I encourage you to listen to Rob's sermon if you were not here last Sunday, or even if you were, I encourage you to hear it again. One of the questions that Rob asked us to consider was how are you responding to what Jesus has been communicating 
to you. This question helps us to reflect on the measure of our faith now, the condition of our hearts, how strong or weak we feel in our relationship to Jesus. As one pastor put it, imagine you are in a rowboat on a lake and you've fallen asleep. And when you wake up, you realize the shore is much farther away. In your relationship with Jesus, it may seem he too is far from you. He's barely visible in the distance. And you might even feel that he has distanced himself from you. But in fact, it is you who has drifted away. I will give you an example of a message that I read recently from someone who has expressed an earnest interest, an earnest, given an earnest response to his need to see and hear Christ more. In other words, to close that distance. This is a prayer request which this brother has given me permission to share. And this is his request that I will continue to maintain and expand a solid foundation in my faith. There are times when I question the veracity of my acceptance with Christ, whether it is genuine or merely accepted as factual. To set more time aside to reflect on the weekly sermons, as well as reading the Bible more often. Here is a brother who by asking for prayer that his faith might not fail, expresses his honest concern for his relationship with Jesus. He does not want to slip into spiritual atrophy. Prayer and the asking for prayer is a response that says, I do not accept the poor quality of my heart to nurture the word of God, to nurture my faith. I am turning to the one who can change that. His is a faith-guided response that moves toward Christ even when he doesn't feel the sureness of his faith at the present time. The Apostle Paul gives us a prayer for this brother. From Ephesians, we read, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. New Hope 
our need is not only to close the distance between Jesus and ourselves, to know him more and more, but as the scriptures say, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to be filled with all the fullness of him, to see the glory of Christ. At the deepest level, this is what it means that more will be given. This is the more, the strength of faith, the heart to behold, that is needed to see, to experience the glory of Christ. So I'd like to close with two passages that express our need for Christ and the response that we are called to have to our need and to Jesus' teaching. The first is from the book, The Glory of Christ, a wonderful book written by the 17th century Puritan pastor, John Owen. I think it's here on your screen. So I'll read this passage. John Owen writes, let your thoughts of Christ be many, increasing more and more each day. He is never far from us, as Paul tells us, Romans 10. The things Christ did were done many years ago, and they are long since past. But says Paul, the word of the gospel where these things are revealed and by which they are brought home to our souls is near us, even in our hearts, that is, if we are true believers and have received the word by faith. So the gospel exhibits Christ and all the benefits of his mediatory work to us. If therefore the word is in our hearts, Christ is near us. If we at any time turn into ourselves to converse with the word in us by meditation, we shall find him ready to receive us into communion with himself. By the light of the knowledge of Christ, which we have by the word, unexpected thoughts of him will continually come to mind. But if our minds and hearts are filled with other things, how can we expect to have fellowship with him in beholding his glory? The second passage is from a sermon that Tim Keller gave. This is a very short excerpt from the transcript of his sermon, Beholding Love of God, and it's about 1 John. And in this sermon, in, in reading the transcript, you see more of where Keller is going. In this sermon, what Keller seems to be doing is, is having an insight about what the Apostle John realized or began to feel emotionally and spiritually when he was writing his book. It's as though Keller is recognizing when John says, behold, that Jesus is coming into his presence as though Jesus is right before him. And, and the interesting thing, in, as you read this passage, is as Keller is recognizing what John feels, it very much seems as though Keller is feeling the same thing. It's as though he feels Jesus' presence there. And so as you see this language, that it's not very typical Keller language, this language is almost like a stream of consciousness. And 
it's almost as though he's having this spiritual revelation as he speaks. So I'll read just this short excerpt. Knowing God is when the truth overflows the mind into all the rest of you. It flows out into your feelings. It flows out into your will. It flows out into every part of you. What it means to know God is when the truth overflows into all the rest of you, out of your mind and everything else. When you don't just know, but you see it. See, he doesn't just say, I know that God has done this. He says, behold. It's like when the truth goes through your life the way lightning goes through a lightning rod. Knowing God is where the truth is. There's movement from analysis to intuition. The truth moves from something you just understand to something you stand under. It moves from something you know about, but then it overshadows you. It moves from something that you're detached from. And you start to say, is, if this is true, oh my gosh, if this is true, how can I be worried about this? How can I be angry about that? How can I be depressed about this? How can I be afraid of that? You knew it. Here's when you know your move from knowing about God to knowing God. It just gets absolutely astonishing. It moves from the mind to the heart. It moves from analysis to intuition. You see, it moves from understanding to standing under. It moves from seeing in a detached way and to seeing how it connects with everything. Behold, it moves from just knowing to be holy. So in closing, New Hope, let's behold the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our reading of the Bible, in our meditations, in our trusting and turning to Christ with increasing strength and hope and love. For to the one who has, more will be given. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for the strength, for the will, for the faith to seek you through your word, to see Jesus in his glory, to behold him as our savior and our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.